All right, welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. Uh, this is Mike Prada. Ben Epstein is still on his honeymoon, although in case you haven't noticed, he's been liking and doing some social media activity while he should be celebrating, so let's ding him for that. He'll be back before the season starts, but until then, I'm on my own continuing our team-by-team off-season preview series. Uh, in this episode, we have the Toronto Raptors, a team that overachieved last year, got really far, got to the conference finals, their best finish ever. And drew some sneers along the way for it. Kind of people wondering what they were doing here. So to help us try to figure out what this team is really about, we've got Daniel Reynolds. He's the editor of Raptors HQ, SB Nation's Raptors site. You can also follow him at aka underscore Reynolds on Twitter. We get into a lot. We get into their star players, uh, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, but also some of the nitty-gritty details that will make or break this Raptors team. Plus, yes, we talk a little bit about Drake at the end. So enjoy that. But before you do anything... You should subscribe to the Limited Upside Podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to, again, this is the 26th of 30 team previews. So go scan for your favorite team and go find that preview. And get to know your team in much more detail with our great SB Nation bloggers. You can also leave us a review. Uh, we really appreciate your feedback, especially if it's constructive. So do that. And you can follow us on Twitter at Limited underscore Upside. Find us on all the other podcasting platforms. You can follow me at Mike Prada SBN. And send us questions you want us answered on the show or on future shows. We help use these questions to dictate the, the type of show we do. We ask them. Anyone who's listened to us knows that. So you will get your questions answered. You can send those on Twitter uh, or you can email me at Mike Prada at SBNation.com. But enjoy this podcast, the Toronto Raptors with Daniel Reynolds of Raptors HQ. This is a limited upside podcast. Okay, it's the Toronto Raptors, and we have Daniel Reynolds from Raptors HQ. And Daniel, I want to I want to ask you about sort of the the interesting dichotomy that I, I noticed watching the Raptors playoff run. So obviously, at the end of the Cleveland game, the last game six, those those fans are going nuts. It's the best season in Raptors history. You can tell that the fans really appreciate it. LeBron said something, and it's an interesting contrast, I think, to sort of some of the not necessarily sneering, but just like how did the the sneering, I guess, of what this Raptors team was doing as they made this conference finals run. Like, how did this team get here? And do they really deserve to be here? And they're just kind of a little pawn, a little engine that could. And it's cute that they're here. And in, in your mind, as a Raptors fan, like, did that get annoying? Uh, it, it did get annoying. Um, but it was also, I mean, the team didn't really do themselves any favors. Uh, particularly, uh, I mean, there were a couple of stretches during both of those earlier, those, the series against Indiana and the series against Miami, where it just felt like, they couldn't sort of get out of their own way to just put these teams away. But yes, there is a there is this constant narrative around the Raptors, and fans definitely uh, pick up on it that you know Toronto is the sort of forgotten team or the sort of disregarded team or the you know you see it all the time in terms you know there was that poll uh, you know who's going to the finals and and there was the three options and then other you know it's, it's the kind of thing that it's the kind of thing that feeds into a sort of. Um, the Toronto's mindset, basketball mindset of like, you know, we're, we're forgotten about. And it's also colored by the fact that in this city, uh, you know, the Leafs, the Raptors have always been sort of second to the Leafs or, or, or something to hockey and to other things. So in the, in their, in their own community. So it is annoying because you want to be talked about in that sort of that way of, you know, respect. A lot of fan bases, I think have this sort of chip on their shoulder. Like the league is forgetting about us and, you know, but, it did feel like Toronto's was unique. I mean, why do you think for Toronto fans it's it's different than some of the other fan bases that kind of feel lack of respect from national attention or just they haven't had a ton of success and they they're not looked at as a glamour team? Like why is it different for in Toronto, do you think? Well, I mean, I think the fact that we're in Canada is uh, obviously one sort of thing. There's always this kind of idea of like there's an American versus Canadian perception. So it's like when, when certain teams, I mean, you're seeing it now in the baseball playoffs, the Jays get relegated to different, to, to the times they don't, to the less, uh, less good broadcast time. So there's always this, this sort of U S Canada divide, but it's also, I think, um, 
it's just indicative of like just how this team's the history of this team. They've never quite, you know, that one little blip, that Vince Carter blip in 01 where it felt like they were really starting to make a name for themselves. But other than that, the team hasn't done itself any favors. It's been poorly run and and every sort of time they've made any sort of appearance in the, in a bigger stage, they, they haven't done very well. And if, and if it continues, just sort of feeds the narrative. I also think there's some degree to the style of play of the team had a factor, uh, but it's odd a little bit to me, uh, and I think it speaks a little bit to sort of the championship robust mentality that a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. That this is a franchise that, like you said, has has never kind of been on this stage before. This is by far their best year. They overachieve. You know, they were not expected to win fifty six games, and look, they were one game behind Cleveland in the regular season. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were right there. And they make this this playoff run, and they get big clutch performances. They have maybe not like the the stars you would know, but they are built around their best players. It's not like this is one of those kind of 2004 Pistons sort of who's the best guy on this team type of team. Like this is a team with with key players that I guess we just didn't know, and a great fan base, a really loud fan base. Uh, so it wasn't like nobody was paying attention to them, and and yet there was. Definitely a sense of who are these guys and are they really for real? Uh, watching this team play and thinking about how this team played, do, do you think there may be something to that feeling? Like, where did that come from? Like, why was, I mean, besides sort of the sort of maybe forgotten nature of Canada, there was okay. other reasons, I think, whether fair or not, that this team was sort of doubted and sort of and not really looked at as a contender. Why do you think that was? Well, I think you, you actually you hit on it there. I think I think the, the fact that the top two players in the team, obviously Kyle Lowry, Demar Derozan, are obviously both very good players, but they're in this weird sort of nebulous thing where it's almost like Derozan, for example, is a perfect example of this. He's a good player. You look at his stats and you go, "Wow, that's, those are good stats." You know, solid player. But there's this sort of mindset where even if even at a, as an All Star player, he's he's not in that conversation of like you know, uh, superstar changing the sort of team or winning, you know, winning games or series on his own, taking over games. I mean, you saw that in the playoffs last year where he was clearly outshone by like Paul George, for example, who who definitely is in that superstar category. And then Lowry is an interesting case because obviously he spent most of his career in the, in the shadows of other players or on the bench. So yeah, there's not as much, um, a recognizable, you know, a recognition from 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 people, and and even though, like, I think Toronto fans sort of appreciate the players who they have now. There's not, they haven't done, they haven't had sort of a signature moment where it's like, wow, look at this, like, look at these guys. These guys are worth watching. Right, and the signature moment was in a lot of minds is Lowry shooting so terribly, and then going, you know, at, after the game, shooting after the game on the practice court, and that just very ugly series with Miami. If I could just interject, that wasn't the practice court. That was why that was such a key moment. He did that on the main court. Oh, that's right. He was where, on the main people, court, of course. Where people, yes. where people could see him, and so that was the kind of thing where it was like Lowry very. He didn't have to do that. He could have gone because there is a court that that's that would have been private. And he could have done that, but he went out there and, and it was and it did become this kind of what's going on with Kyle Lowry? What's what's happening? And of course, that sort of fed back into this idea of well, Toronto's just the joke team, and there's their best player playing poorly. Even though when he was off the court, the Raptors were a disaster, like statistically speaking. They needed him on the court for a, you know both both sides of the court to drive the team in any direction, even when he wasn't shooting well. Yeah, and there was also that moment also in the Cavs series where he took himself out and there was a lot of talk of did he quit on the team, which is obviously a little absurd. Yeah, uh, that was sort of his normal rest. But um, it was still he was still struggling really badly. Uh, I think for a lot of people who watched this team for the first time in the playoffs, what they saw was a team that just kind of didn't run a lot of great offense, a lot of isolation, and it just wasn't that fun to watch. It wasn't that interesting. Yet they won 56 games, so – if you're trying to explain to an outsider or someone who just started watching, like, hey, why is this Raptors team a 56-win team that got this far, and why are they not sort of a joke? Like, what what would you point to? Is it all Lowry? Were there other factors? What do you think was a big key to their overachieving season? Um, well, I think I think uh, Lowry and DeRozan were I think the the biggest parts, uh, but uh, but also I think it, they are they are fairly balanced in terms of where what what they what they do. Uh, they have obviously 
two guys that need the ball in their hands quite a bit. And I think that's where they get their knocks. As you say, I think that's where they get their knocks for their playing style because DeRozan is kind of a throwback, you know, guard in terms of his playing style. He's very good, at, I think, at what he does. But, you know, it's a lot of long twos and questionable forays to the rim and free throws. Um, Lowry makes it, to me, it makes it very exciting. I get why his isolation game is sometimes kind of dull, I suppose. But uh, I think he works well with, in combination with the rest of the team. And I think you saw that last year when the, their most potent lineup was Lowry plus the bench players, Corey Joseph, Terrence Ross, Patrick Patterson, and Bismack Biombo. And that was like a really, really potent lineup. And it was because they had all the pieces that you'd want from sort of a modern lineup. They had a rim, rim protection, some good some good sort of uh, ball movement and great shooting moving around the court. And I just, I, you know, there, there's just a lot to take in there, I, I feel. But Again, there, there isn't that like transcendent performance that sort of makes it easy to distill why they get to 56 wins or why they are like noteworthy. Well, it's funny you say that because I think a lot of – if you really watch, like Kyle Lowry had a transcendent season. Mm-hmm. But he lost weight. He was in much better shape. He was much more aggressive as a shooter. He's a – able to sort of have some of the defensive burden carried off him. You mentioned that bench unit, Corey Joseph, I think was a big part of just taking some of the playmaking burden away from Lowry. Uh, he's just such a sneaky player. He gets these good shots. He had a transcendent year, and yet, I mean, do you think it's all just because he kind of took the road less traveled? I mean, is there something else about his game that caused him to be overlooked a little bit? I well, I think it's two things. I think yeah, one is he he wasn't he, he did take the role as travel. He spent years sort of in the again on the bench, so to speak. But I think also um, just at his position, there's a lot of players that are maybe outwardly flashier, or or there are better players. You're talking about a pretty stacked position, and the things Lowry does, a lot of it is is. Um, it's not not minor things, but it's not exactly always superstar things. It's it's taking charges. It's it's you know poking out poking out steals. It's it's you know dropping three pointers. But I mean that's what I mean that stuff's pretty that shooting threes is pretty standard now I guess for a point guard. Um, so it's not really those sort of you know you know crazy John Wall forays to the rim or or you know Steph Curry putting on a show it's it's not as flashy as that and I think that gives the Raptors this kind of you know coupled with DeRozan gives them this kind of workmanlike quality yeah the the image I always have of Lowry is he's the guy that taps you on the shoulder and then runs away and you look the wrong way and that's how that's kind of the image I always have of him just kind of sneaking away and maximizing every you know we talk about Chris Paul this way and he just he maximizes every little part of the game that he can like that's the image I get from Lowry in terms of it reminds me a lot of Chauncey Billups and playing style but he has sort of an extra element of you know he just happens to cut away at the perfect time when you fall asleep he's very very smart and very sort of uh, aware of what's going on at all times so even if you know he's not shooting well for example he's making a difference because he is very much the Chris Paul and Chauncey Billups comparisons are I think pretty good in that I mean Paul obviously is one of the best or the best point card but it's like that sort of mindset of of shaping the game or trying to control the game yeah he's not the playmaker that Paul is obviously it's just, yeah, yeah. just kind of the the ability to just maximize every little inefficient efficiency they can. I wonder if that sort of style, not only is that obviously not quite as flashy or whatever, but I think it also, in the playoffs, you saw this a little bit, uh, even though the team was, was so much better with him on the court, and even though he had signature games at, at key moments, I think there were times as well that sometimes the little – inefficiencies that tend to close up you know players are a little more aware when you're guarded you know you can't just sneak away from them as easily in the playoffs they're they have their head on a swivel a lot more they're just more focused and that's sort of the thing I wonder about with this team as a whole and with DeRozan as well is that they are they sort of for lack of a better term are they built for the regular season and I think I mean look they made the conference finals but that wasn't easy they should have close out Indiana a lot sooner than they did, I think in terms of talent I know Indiana was a little underrated last year I think they underachieved but they shouldn't have made it so hard. And then Miami obviously was banged up. And so that's the thing I worry about with the future. But at the same time, it's not the end. It's not so bad for the city like Toronto to be in the conference finals and have that sort of run. You know, I think that has to be, can't be overlooked. You know, success is not quite just a championship robust mentality. And, and that's what Toronto was able to solve. And it's a good lesson, I think, to a lot of teams that don't have the, I mean, because I think 
very few people understandably gave them a chance against LeBron. They don't have LeBron. I mean, and I, I think the same thing is going to be true this year. They just don't have the super duper stars, but they've done everything they possibly could to get to this level. They built a really good team around really good players, and that's something to be proud of. Uh, let's talk a bit about the summer. Uh, so they follow this up with they keep DeMar DeRozan. They give him, I don't remember exactly what his <laughs> number was. It was a big number. <laughs> Yeah, 139 million, I think it was, something it's like that. It's a big yeah. number. Uh, yeah. Just short of the max, but essentially a five year max contract. Uh, he is, I believe, age 27 at this time. So, given that the team was much better with Lowry in the bench, given some of the faults in DeRozan's I mean, DeRozan, game. DeRozan. Sorry, with, with Lowry in the bench, the team was much better than with DeRozan in the game by plus minus, like you were mentioning. Given some of the faults in his game, was, is there an argument for that was a mistake of a contract? They should have just let him go and tried to build the team uh, without him and uh, all that. I mean, would you have – was there any argument to not keeping him in your mind? I think the argument to not keeping him is this idea that you you shift the the offense of the team to Lowry and Valanciunas. You, you become more of a pick-and-roll team and you you get away from the what DeRozan brings, which is – you know, his sort of brand of ISO basketball, which I think he's very good at and he keeps getting better at. Uh, and then you fill in his minutes with Terrence Ross, who you've got under a very reasonable contract. And then Norman Powell, who, you know, I mean, Raptors fans are going nuts about him. And, <laughs> no, and, and rightfully so. I mean, this is what good organizations you hope they'll do. The Raptors have pretty much never done this. They've got a second round pick who might actually be like a, a solid maybe above average rotation player. And it's like, Oh, look at this. This is very exciting. So there was this kind of mindset of, well, if we don't pay him, then we can use all this money to, for someone to get someone. But I think that completely ignores the fact that the Raptors have never signed a player, like a a sort of homegrown player to that third, to that big contract. Like they've gotten the rookie contract and the extension. And then they've always just lost that guy or had to trade him or something. And I think even if DeRozan is like a notch below the superstar player, I think it really it really mattered to the optics of the team and to sort of what they were trying to do in terms of building a winning culture. So it's really hard. I mean, I can't imagine Masai Ujiri is going like, these are our guys, these are our guys, and then turning around and and just letting him walk for nothing. I mean, you, you, maybe he trades him down the line, but I can't see – I can't – I just couldn't – this made – it made no sense to me to to it, to let him walk. Well, what you're referring to is obviously Chris Bosh is the most famous case of a guy that just left. Uh, when and Vince Carter. And Vince Carter was traded and wanted out. Uh, those are the two, the two most famous cases right there. And I think the other factor as well is that Lowry and DeRozan have a very close relationship. And guess who's a free agent next this coming summer? Right, exactly. And I think that that's another thing where it's it, it, it would have sent the message of like, yeah, this is all fine and good. We don't care. And then, and then what happens? DeRozan leaves. Lowry maybe isn't so easy to keep. Maybe you let him. Like maybe they have to let him go. And then you're where'd you go? You right, go go right back down the standings, which is you know where they've been for a long time. Whereas if you keep DeRozan, you potentially keep Lowry. Yeah, they don't win the title, but those two guys is their one two, especially not with LeBron always around. But but you know now you have a team that can win like just be in the mix every year. And that's something that we, that Toronto's just never had. Yeah. And if you're in the mix, you know, you never know what could happen. And Toronto has drafted well generally. So it's not like they are no avenues to improve. There's Norman Powell, like you said. So may your basketball wise, you could, I think make a case that it was a mistake to resign to Rosen, but certainly for the big picture optics, like you mentioned, I think it would have been really tough. But is there any room for DeRozan to get any better from here? I mean, he's he had a great year last year, obviously. He was much more powerful driving to the basket, getting to the free throw line. Uh, but the, still, the same fundamental flaws are there. He is not a great perimeter jump shooter, from especially from three-point range. You, every year it feels like, oh, this is the year DeMar DeRozan is going to start shooting threes at a decent rate, and it hasn't happened. Not a very good attentive defender, although he certainly has the tools to, I think, improve on that end. You know, is there any way he can get better at this point, given that you know he's been in the league a long time and he's right sort of in the middle of his prime? Uh, I think I think you've touched on some things there. I think, uh, I mean, if he, if he can get modestly better three-point shooting in terms of just increasing the volume and the efficiency, I mean, I, that'd be a huge. I don't know if you'd see that. I don't think we're ever going to – I don't think at this point – I don't think we, we may ever see it. But I think he's 
and this point's been made before, I think he's figured out ways to maximize all the things he can do. Like he can get into the post now and is, and I think is pretty solid in, in, in the types of moves he's got down there, the types of weapons, the types of different things he can go to. I think he's become very good at obviously at drawing fouls and he can attack the basket in various ways. If there are causes for concern, it's sort of what you hinted on earlier. Uh, there are guys that can take him out of his game. There are guys that can really frustrate him uh, and there are guys that he's going to keep seeing you know, like Paul George erased him for for long stretches of against Indiana. Uh, you know, Justice Winslow could do the same thing. You, you worry about like Jay Crowder on him. Like they're, these bigger wing players, Jimmy Butler, they can really disrupt what DeRozan wants to do. But I think he's figured out like he's he knows who he is and he and and he's a very solid player in that regard. And whether or not he can improve, it's going to just it's going to be in just the minutia. And if he can become a better defender, that'd be great, too. But uh I'm not holding my breath on that one either. Yeah, I mean, that's the one where you really hope he can improve because offensively, he just, as good as he is at his dimensions, he is not very multidimensional, and that becomes a problem the better competition you face, like you said. Yeah. And it was a problem in the playoffs. And at this age, I think it's unrealistic to expect significant improvement from there. And he believes that he's sort of a battering ram on offense. He kind of has his way. And that really can disrupt the team. And I wonder... Maybe there's room for him to play fewer minutes and have more minutes with Lowry sort of in a spread pick and roll sort of system with Ross or Powell playing that time. Maybe he'd be okay with that now that he got paid. You know, he was underpaid for so long. Now he's kind of got his contract. You know, maybe they can do more to split split him and Lowry up. I don't know, but that's always going to be a challenge for them because I don't see his game becoming significantly more multidimensional. Uh, offensively at least, it would be really nice because I think he has the tools to be a much better defender than he is. That's, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I, again, it's it's a matter of just attentiveness and sort of uh, following the schemes. I mean, every the, this team, you're right. I mean, I don't think he he's like he he's not a he's a he's a good learner and he's and he's and every year he has added things to his game. I think what you hinted at there though, hinted at there though, was was a more interesting question about what they're going to do, what the Raptors are going to do in terms of minutes with Lowry DeRozan and particularly with Valanciunas now that there's no now that the now that that sort of potent lineup is gone uh with with Biombo gone and and sort of the backup center question in flux it's interesting to see how that how Dwayne Casey will stagger minutes between Lowry DeRozan and Valanciunas to maximize all of them I think you're right I think there's an opportunity there for maybe DeRozan to play more without Lowry or to play in different combinations with different players the way the team's structured now and might see something different from him yeah, so last year, like you said, that bench unit, and I obviously, because I'm never prepared for this podcast, I don't have the exact <laughs> numbers in front of me, and I'm trying to get them, but uh, the the bench unit of Lowry, Corey Joseph, uh, Terrence Ross, Patrick Patterson, and Bismack Biombo was by far the Raptors' best lineup. I believe their starting lineup was a negative lineup in terms of production. Yeah, Scola in there it kind, of, it kind of hurt that lineup combo for sure. Yeah, so Skull obviously starting. And not having Damari Carroll at full strength for, or at all, basically, for the entire season. That's right. So, yeah, so the Biombo, Joseph, Lowry, Patterson, Terrence Ross lineup uh, was a plus 16.4 in almost 300 minutes last year. So that is one of the best lineups in the league. Interestingly, though, that I guess that same lineup was also very good with DeRozan in Lowry's place. Uh, that was a plus 13.7, less good in the playoffs. So... That unit obviously is no longer there. Biombo has gone to Orlando on a gargantuan contract that the Raptors just had no ability to match. Not, not just because they didn't; it was not prudent, but also because they did not have his free agent rights. So that was never going to happen. So they replaced him with Jared Sellinger, who they get at the end of the offseason from the Celtics uh, on a one-year make-good deal. They also draft Jakob Pertl, the Utah center. Uh, so and they have some other young players waiting in the wings: uh, Lucas Nogueira. Bebe Noguera, maybe he steps forward. Uh, so, and they have a first-round pick as well. Has played very well in summer league uh, or in preseason. Pascal Siakam, is that how you pronounce yeah. his name? Yeah, yeah. So they have some options. Uh, who do you see as the Biombo replacement? How do how do how does that front court work out? That's going to be the big question, and, I, and we've been trying to hash it out all summer. Is that basically now it, the de facto, I guess, backup center is Lucas Noguera. The team they've had him now for a couple of seasons. He hasn't quite shown the consistency. You could put him out there in a game for five minutes and he'll do something. He'll turn the tide. He'll, he'll make some plays. He has a great, I think, a, a, a pretty good uh, um, 
pick and roll sort of connection with Lowry, and he has huge range. He can, like in terms of uh, his uh, wingspan, he can get up there for for any sort of pass. But his defensive positioning is all over the place, and he'll disappear, and he'll get pushed around. You never know. But it, it really changes what they're going to do because now basically you've got Valanciunas as your only sort of steady center, and then you've got you've got Patterson and Solinger as your four. Maybe play Solinger at the five, and then you got Carroll hopefully at full strength, who can maybe play some four. So your front court now is in some real flex, and then you've got these three young guys who one of them is going to probably be asked to do something this season. And the other two will play, I, I imagine, predominantly in the D-League. They've said, Casey has said recently that he sees uh, Siakam as more of a 3-4. So playing him at a small ball five is out. So you're looking at, at what you can get from Pirtle. And then you're, you're hoping to get some sort of consistency from Nogueira. I think right now it's his spot to lose. But, I mean, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a very interesting question. I'm very excited to see how it actually plays out when the games start to matter. There's a domino effect too. So Selinger right now is slated to start at the four, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think that's the right move? Real quick. Yeah, I think I think uh, putting him at the. I mean, he's an upgrade over Luis Scola, so I I can see the the thinking that you put him there, you hopefully get a little bit more, uh, a little bit of that shooting range. Although I know he's not an amazing three point shooter, you hope for a little bit of that, and then plus him and Valanciunas on the boards are just going to destroy everyone. But anyway. Yeah. So. Facilitator Kobe sends us a question related to this, which is, why not just start Patrick Patterson? Why do the Raptors feel like Patterson plays better off the bench? I mean, that that's sort of been a confusing question for a lot of people who come at this from a national angle, but locally, this is sort of an accepted thing that Patterson prefers to play off the bench. You know, why is that? I don't know if he prefers to play. I think it's funny. In the preseason last year, he played in like four games, didn't really, I, I guess, didn't really wow in the starting lineup and i think the season before he did play a little bit starting minutes here and there but for whatever reason he never had like a a sequel a a run of games as a starter where he played really well then last season you had him in this amazingly potent bench lineup and he was very useful as as sort of the closing uh the closing lineup power forward particularly because carol was out for most of the season and he was useful at guarding on the perimeter and dealing with guys like, you know, LeBron James when he had to. Uh, and so then it became more potent to sort of just put him, come up, come off the bench. Although believe me, the, the complaints during the season about Scola playing so many minutes and the team sort of playing from behind sometimes at the start of games were pretty deafening. So I'm hoping that Sollinger's, there will be a step up from that anyway. So you think that they, they can't play him off the bench just to keep him with better players? Cause what happened last year in the playoffs, I think that, that backfired a little bit where they felt like they had to replace Scola because he, they could no longer afford to give up those points and Patterson has never started and he really didn't, wasn't used to it. And, you know, maybe if you play him, start him a little bit more during the season, he was, he's more used to it. And the other problem with com- him coming off the bench also is that he ends up playing a long, a lot of minutes in a row. Although maybe the return of Carroll will alleviate that. And so he can play some small ball four. You can see, too, just how this is all connected. You know, who plays in the front court depends on who, how often the Raptors go small. And then how often the Raptors go small depends on how often you want to play Powell and Terrence Ross. So exactly, it sort of yeah. filters on down. You know, so this is a – there are a lot of questions to be answered throughout the rotation, even if it's only one spot that's really a problem. Well, what's exciting is that these questions – to me, anyways, these questions exist, that the team has these <laughs> – well, I just think that these – that they no, have. I agree. Where you, you could match up against a team that plays small and you go, okay, we can run out, you know, Patterson and Sullinger and the, or Powell or, sorry, and uh, Carroll. Like you can, you can do a bunch of different things at the three, four, five that, that are, you know, n- none of them are, are disasters. They're all kind of like interesting ideas. I mean, they, they did that with James Johnson last year. Every so often they put him out there in, in the three or the four and it was like, okay, now what are we getting with this look now? So, I mean, it, it, there's a hole there because Biombo really did anchor a lot of the, the defensive sort of identity of the team, but he too was up and down during the season and he was a total zero on offense. I mean, you couldn't even throw him the ball for the, for half the season. He couldn't catch it or move with it. So now even that hole is sort of closed. It's just a matter of how these pieces fall into place. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah. Defensively, I think it could be a little bit of a problem uh, with Selinger and Valanciunas, neither of them particularly mobile defenders. And like you said, not that defense off the bench. I mean, Biombo was one of the league's best rim protectors and 
really fast. And yeah, he was pretty limited on offense, but at least he could really set screens and grab offensive rebounds and shove his body around. So they are going to miss that. But like you said, they have a lot of flexibility. That leads us to a question about, uh, that I think is, is something to think about is about Dwayne Casey as a coach. And it seems like there's always a little bit of a vocal minority kind of wondering what Dwayne Casey is doing yet. He's, you know, guided this team as further than they ever have so what is your feeling on Casey as a coach do you trust him to be able to manage sort of all these rotation questions and uh all the questions about the team's style of play I mean I think Casey's a great coach uh I mean being around him I mean he's he just seems very knowledgeable and and he seems like one of those guys that can get like inspire players get them get them going the way he wants them to go uh Will he be able to sort of manage this? I mean, there's always uh, yeah. Raptors fans are are always calling for him to you know do this, do that, try this, try that. I think he's a pretty steady hand in in sort of figuring out where how the team should be going. Uh, there are moments where you wonder you know why didn't they try this or why did they do that sooner? Uh, but I mean, I, I feel like he's definitely as far as coaches go. I mean, he, like. My my whole thing is if, for example, like last year after the sweep from Washington, and everyone was saying they should fire Casey, it was like, well, if they fire him, who's the guy you're getting to replace him? So I feel like he's been the guy that's, as you said, shepherded this team along, and now these guys respond to what he's doing. They haven't tuned him out, and they definitely sort of see the gains that they've gotten individually and as a collective under Casey's watch. So I'd feel like. If there's something to figure out, he will figure it out. Plus, I, I think the you know the the coaching staff he surrounds himself with is also very strong. Uh, I'm very I'm very sort of comfortable with what that sort of unit of is there for on the Raptors. He certainly has the respect of Lowry, uh, and, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, it is, and also a lot of coaches have not had the respect of Lowry, so yeah, it's exactly, not a yeah. thing to to overlook. Uh, I also do think that you know while there are some kind of confusing rotation decisions that are made by him and that also sometimes their offense does look really stagnant and you know that is something that uh we had at least one questioner asking if uh d dao rao on roa on twitter uh, god i'm really messed it up <laughs> kind of asking if they're going to be dead last in assists again this year and i think we talked a little bit about that my feeling is that there's nothing that casey can really do to prevent demar Derozan from playing like demar Derozan. You know, sometimes I think any coach would have that sort of style with this team. And also, I think there is a tendency to underrate his tactical uh, skill just because, again, the offense does look a little stagnant. But um, they've gotten a little more out of their defensive talent than I think they should. And that's a credit to him and also Andy Greer, their lead assistant. So uh, I I definitely feel comfortable with him. You know, it's sort of a, a microcosm of the team. Like, is he the very best coach in the league? No, I don't think so. But given that the goal, the state of the team is kind of where it is and it's probably going to stay where it is for a while, uh, he's doing just fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think he, he manages the, the players as well as he can. And, and you hit the nail on the head there. I think that having low assists is indicative of the fact that, yeah, the two main guys on the team want the ball in their hands, need the ball in their hands, and that's just sort of how it goes. And there's not really much case he can you know, yell and scream all he wants, but DeRozan's going to take his shots because that's what he does. And so we think that that is probably going to repeat itself, their style. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they're going to probably still be in the bottom, near the bottom of the league in assists. And there's not much that can be done to sort of juice the, the offense up. Is there, are there some little things that you see? I mean, they were a really good offense. Like, yeah. they were top five in the league. So it obviously works. Uh, but in the playoffs, I think it was a bit of a problem. Well, I think Solinger, adding Solinger is going to help in some ways just because he is better now as a player than Luis Scola. And I think you're going to see little things. I think Terrence Ross is showing something so far in the preseason. Hopefully it carries over in terms of his confidence coming off screens. You know, he's still a good shooter. Uh, Joseph as well. He might sort of improve his, his shooting, which is what they, the team really needs. And then Carroll, having Carroll hopefully healthy for a season. I mean, here's a guy who adds – he adds all the little things the Raptors need in terms of shooting, cutting, sort of making the smart play. And he's a guy who moves the ball as well doesn't, and doesn't need the ball in his hands. So I think having him for an entire season, hopefully, knock on wood, will really sort of, you know, it's a small thing, but it's a little thing that just, you know, it gets everything turning a little bit faster and a little bit better. Yeah, it's certainly the ball movement I think will help with Carroll. I, I worry about him defensively a little bit. I don't know if he quite has the same juice he used to, but we will see. I mean, maybe 
playing more four will help him, but also maybe it'll cause him to wear down. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, that's the, that's sort of the dilemma, and I, I think these are questions that a coach has to consider that are not as easy to consider, like especially Patterson as well. You know, does starting him and playing him more minutes cause him to wear down over a long period of time? Like it's it's not always so easy. I think now with how much work these players have to do to sustain their production for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've gotten a couple questions about uh, Terrence Ross versus Norman Powell. Jack Epstein asks one. Uh, we've also got Cameron Quissy asking. Uh, this is apparently a popular topic in Raptor land. So yes. who, who's going to play more and how do you see their roles shaking out? Because it does it did start to kind of feel like by the end of the year that Powell was starting to usurp some of Ross's minutes. I think they, they, they both sort of bring different things. Terrence Ross right now is probably – like a behind Lowry is 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 probably the best sort of volume three point shooter the team has. I mean, I, they have the they have the hope that Carroll can provide that as well. But but obviously he was out for most of the season. But he's Terrence Ross is very valuable in that regard, uh, and he also doesn't have much of a conscience for, to, to just bomb away, which the team needs. Uh, he's still, I think, going to get at least at the start. He's going to get the the minutes he usually gets. It's going to be interesting to see. I I don't know how many how many like I don't know how much. How many minutes Powell jumps up by? I mean, he played in, I'm looking at the stats now, he played in 49 games, he started 24. Partly that was a function of the fact that Carroll wasn't there. He averaged 15 minutes or 14.8 minutes, which is, again, a function of the fact that he got, due to injury time, he got to he got to be in there. I don't know if it, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see how much it jumps up. And it goes back to, uh, you know, how much do they want to play small? I mean, Powell, you could play lineups conceivably with, with Powell, like you have an interesting combination with Powell, Ross, DeRozan, Joseph, and Lowry, where you have all these guys who could play a bunch of different positions. Powell's and Powell's getting, you know, he, play, he played a lot in the summer league with with the ball in his hands. You know, he can play he can play just spotting up in the corners. Ideally, that's what he's going to do on this team uh, and be and be effective there. I mean, Casey likes his defensive intensity. I mean, that's always been there versus Ross, who sometimes goes in and out on attentiveness. So, I mean, I think that's there, there's one thing that he can sort of usurp him on. I think that's where you, what you point to the fact that he's stronger and and potentially more useful on the defensive end. But I think Ross is going to be is going to get more minutes unless unless he really starts to falter or the team figures out a way to trade him because he's the only not the only, but on a very reasonable contract and he has trade value and if there is something out there, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. If it didn't happen already, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. I think they got to find more time for Powell. I think he's a really interesting, promising player. Mm-hmm. He's a little small. So like, I don't know if he's quite a starting three, you know, I think if they were to hypothetically in a world, start him at the three, I think they would have some of the same problems they had a couple years ago in the playoffs where bigger wings will just back him down. He's a little small, He's stronger than Ross, though. He's stronger than Ross. He's got he's got a he's got a huge reach. But you're right. He's like six foot four, so it's a bit a bit of a reach for uh, playing with the three. Right, but I think they got to find some time for him. You know, it, it is going to be a bit of a challenge. But maybe you know, you never maybe he'll start to face Carroll out if he plays really well. I know it's a good problem to have, but you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff there uh, in terms of his ability. I guess you have to see if his shooting is for real. He shot that's really well game. last that's, year yeah. and we'll see. Are you convinced? Well, I think he's, I think he knows that that's the thing he's got to work on because really on this, on this team, basically you're going to be a, you're going to be a guy who, if you're going to play on the wing, you're going to be expected to hit three pointers and Ross can, and Powell like has shown he can shoot it, but he's not like the volume is just not there. So if he, if he, gets a lot of opportunities to take those shots and he hits them well, then it starts to get a little easier to play him more because if he's going to play across from DeRozan or, or Lowry, he's got to be able to be ready for that pass to come to him. I, I think, I, you know, I, I don't know if he's there yet, but, but uh, I, you know, he, he's, he's definitely working on it because that's the thing he needs to get down. It also illustrates that the Raptors have a, a bit of a second wave kind of coming through. Uh, By design. That people don't really under realize. I mean, you, we talked about Powell. Uh, Pirtle is another one. Uh, De La Wright is injured, but he's sort of another one if he can get healthy again. Uh, you've got Noguera. Uh, who knows what <laughs> Bruno Caboclo could be? You know, he still feels like he's maybe five years away from being five years yeah, away. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they dra- and Sayakim as well, who looked really interesting in, in the preseason. This team drafts very well, and you wonder. 
if they reach a point where they've really got to solve that power forward spot for good, will they look to make a trade? You know, they have resisted making a trade for power forward before. They feel like the cost was too high. But, you know, is there a world where someone becomes available and they can use some of these pieces to upgrade? Do you do you think that that's something they should do? Or is that too much of a risk? Should they sort of try to play the long the long game given that LeBron is still in the East? Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the question, and it's tough. I think they've done an amazing job. Masai Ujiri's done an amazing job at somehow managing to make this team very competitive while also dedicating like four, five, six spots to to like developing players. And it was funny that they ended up taking using both of those first round picks because at one point it was like it seemed impossible that they would have two more guys, two more rookies to add to the team. And so they've added some guys. You mentioned Wright and Powell. Those are four year players out of college that like. Okay, they can contribute and they could be that, you know, right seems like a lock to be the third guard when he comes back and potentially maybe more. But I don't know what I mean, the trade, they have some good assets to trade. Like you have you're sitting on guys under reasonable, con, very reasonable contracts that can help teams. But you'd have to take a gamble. You, you, I, I don't know. I mean, we joke on the, on the site about making a trade for um for uh, DeMarcus Cousins, but I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to, that'd be the big sort of leap where you'd have to decide whether you want to trade, like for example, Valanchunas. And I don't know if they're there yet because I think they're looking at these young guys going, well, there might be something there. There might be something there. And on top of that, as you say, it's kind of a moot point because LeBron's always going to be looming above you. That's the challenge is we, we start to, let's start to think about how we think the Raptors are going to do this year is there is sort of a glass ceiling that they're always going to run into. And who is the player that is going to put them ahead of the Cavs in a playoff series? I'm not sure that player exists. So what should, what are you, what are Raptors fans expecting for this year? What do you think is going to happen uh, as far as wins? And do you think Raptors fans will be happy with whatever the result is? Well, I think they're going to be a step back from the 56 wins, which was clearly sort of a uh, an amazing sort of rise above expectations. I think they'll probably, I think they're, I think they're comfortable doing another 50 win season, which, you know, some teams that's that's par for the course. You know, the Spurs, the Mavericks for so long they'd win 50 games, like who cares? But for the Raptors to win back to back 50 game 50 win seasons, that's that's insane. Like, I mean, this, this is something that the team has never done. So that that's a positive. Uh, hopefully, uh, they finish, I think it's going to be them in Boston fighting for that second seed. Uh, you know, you can go back and forth on who's got the upper hand there. And then hopefully the playoffs play out a little bit better in terms of, you know, looking like the two seed or the three seed where you play the team six or seven and you beat them well. So the questions aren't sort of, uh, questions of, you know, do the Raptors deserve to be there? Are they a joke, et cetera, et cetera. Is it, is it like, you know, they just sort of get over that hump and it becomes like, no, this is a good team that will challenge and work and then become ideally, I, th- I think the best, ultimately the best case scenario is they become like the Bulls and the Pacers a couple of years ago that, you know, challenge the Cavaliers, make them work, make LeBron James work, but ultimately fall and, and, you know, we can hang our hat on that for now. Okay. So you think, they finish ahead of Boston or behind them? Uh, right now, I'll say they finish ahead. But it's going to be very close. It's going to be very, very close. Yeah, I like Boston a little bit more for the two seed in the regular season because they have one very obvious strength, and that is their defense, and that's going to kind of carry them to a lot of wins. The Raptors are very good offense, but I'm not sure. Like, Boston has a chance to finish with the best defense in the league. You know, okay, all right, fine, fine. So I, I like Boston a little bit better in the regular season. Uh, in the playoffs, I think that's a total toss-up if they meet because Boston, I think, is going to have a lot of trouble scoring. Toronto has a little bit more of an identity. Uh, I see Toronto taking a pretty a step back. I, I just don't know if Lowry and DeRozan can match what they did last year. And while they've improved a little bit on the margins, uh, they also lost Biombo. So I feel that they will take probably a five- to seven-win step back from last year. Uh, from 56, I, I I still think they're the third best team in the East, uh, and but I I I like Boston more to get the two seed just because again they have a definable strength and they have more guys sort of on an upward trajectory than Toronto's who's two best players I think. I mean maybe I'm wrong. Do you think that I mean do you think Lowry and DeRozan can match what they did last year? Uh, because that's sort of the basis of my slight skepticism. I definitely think DeRozan will will match what he did last year. May, maybe even notch it a few. Just a few sort of beats higher than what he did last year. Lowry, 
I mean, Lowry's the whole the whole show for this team. I, I mean, you know, barring some sort of calamitous injury, I, I can't see. I, I I don't know. This this to me, Biombo, losing Biombo is the only sort of big problem, I guess. And I feel like getting getting Carroll back for more of the season and sort of the of course banking on the improvements of Valchunas, Joseph, and Ross sort of really I think to me moved the needle a bit. Granted, I'm, I'm a little closer to. I'm a little bit biased in terms of like, well, you know, no, I, I, I think these guys, saying. Like, that makes sense. There's, there's, there's something there internally that, that can, that can really move the needle. I mean, uh, but I, but I agree that yeah, Boston will, it does have this kind of defensive identity that will definitely help them in the regular season. And uh, like I said, it'll be very close. I, I think they'll, I think I've had them for maybe a 51 sort of that five game drop and wins, I think is fair. It's just a matter of, you know where that where that puts them compared to Boston, and in a playoff series, I mean, geez, I who knows? Yeah, I have no idea either. That would be a great series because I, I do think Boston is a better regular season team than playoff team as of now. Obviously, they could make a big trade, uh, but so could Toronto. So it'll be it'll be quite interesting to see. I, Fifty-one is about the highest I think Toronto will get this year. I think there's a chance they could dip just below fifty, but. Hey, I was a lot of people were wrong about this team last year, so uh, we'll have to see. And it's going to be interesting to see how Lowry performs heading into a contract year because that's going to be a bit of a tricky decision. I mean, obviously they're going to want to keep him kind of in the same sort of optics, like let's keep the way they kept DeRozan. But Lowry is getting up there in age, you know, it, and he is coming off a career year. So you know, you have to wonder if if last year was the best that we saw from Lowry or if maybe somehow he'll be motivated to do even better this year. I, I would guess that it's the best we saw from him, but I don't know. Who knows? I think he's going to adjust. I think he's going to be, uh, he's going to be fine. Uh, he, obviously signing him to a long-term deal is, you know, there's a lot of questions around that, but I think that the, the, the team will go as far as he takes them really, which I mean, that's, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with riding Kyle Lowry in this regard. Yeah, I mean, that sums it up pretty well. So is there anything else we didn't talk about that you think our Raptors fans talking about that are keys to the season? Uh, how many games will Drake show up at this year? <laughs> what do you think? Oh, man, I don't know. At this point, I'd be surprised if he comes to, you know, five. Like, I, I think, I think, really? the, I think, how many did he go to last year? Oh, I, a handful. Not even, not very many. Uh, well, once the playoffs rolled in, he was there, I think, most nights, but, uh, I think I think the there's been some columns written about this, uh, particularly how the Drake night has gone. How it, it seems like the distance between him is and the team is growing, and part of it is because when they sort of signed him on as their figurehead, it was thought that the team would be bad, so he would be the sort of face for the team. But then the team got good, and then they didn't <laughs> then they didn't need him as much as a as a distraction. Oh, and I think yeah, there was a whole uh, piece about that after the last Drake night where it, it felt like. Not that they were distancing themselves from him, but it was like, it was it was sort of like, well, yeah, it's nice that he's around, but uh, you know, we've got this good team now, so we don't have to worry as much. It's funny you say he only went to a handful of games. Like I seem to remember him at a lot more games than maybe he was at. You know, it's, it always just felt like when I was watching a Raptors home game because he somehow he always somehow managed to make a meme of himself. He was wearing <laughs> you know Costanza glasses. He was distracting a guy. He was doing that. He always seemed to be. And it is funny. He does. He he has an innate sense of knowing when the camera's on him to do something. Right. It's the incredible. lid rollers, or was that was that was this playoffs, right? Yeah, that was no, that was the that was against the Nets. Okay, that was a couple years ago. But okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do remember two years ago when he was fighting with Paul Pierce. That was uh, uh, maybe it just all blends together. Uh, it, it, yes, it does. Yeah. I mean, do Raptors fans feel good about Drake being associated with the team? Do they find him annoying? Do they are they do you think there are more of them? I mean, what's the state? I think it's useful to have. I mean, the Raptors for a long time they they as we sort of talked about they were forgotten about competitively because they were a bad team. But that is in a way that's easier to improve because you can get good players and be a good organization. But then there's this kind of other gap, uh, and I read I wrote about this years ago about this sort of cultural sort of currency that some teams have because of the market they're in or because of, you know, celebrities, you know, celebrity fans or because of some other cachet. So the idea that the Raptors would have this sort of thing where, oh, it's cool to be a Raptors fan. Drake is around and like guys are wearing Raptors jerseys and it's like, okay, 
that sort of improves the identity of the team or the sort of presence of the team. It's a, it's not a quantifiable thing, but it's something where it's like, it's not, they're not even, you know, like Atlanta's a good team, but no one's, no one's, you know, jumping around for Atlanta because they're just, they're just, they don't move the national needle, so to speak. Well, and they're, and they're trying as well. I think, you know, to, yeah. to, to, they've got a lot of different two chains has been to a lot of games. He's done a lot of videos. They're, they're trying to seem cooler as well. Right. So to have, to have, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of funny, like, you know, he's the ambassador and it's, but it, it's meant, you know, and at the all-star game, it was like comical, like, you know, what he did, for example, at the celebrity game it was kind of, it was kind of funny, but just <laughs> being right. a coach and sort of being, being present at all these things. But it's it's one of those things where it's like we can be very casual about the fact that oh yeah one of the biggest sort of celebrities in the world is around this team and whether or not you know he's also at this you know he's also at Kentucky games and he's also at this thing and he's also at that thing but it sort of was kind of cool to have like the fan that is this guy I don't know so it, it adds it adds something more than take, takes away let's just say that well isn't it ironic that the ultimate sort of bandwagon jumping fan uh has become less of a presence as the raptors have become easier to bandwagon it it is there is a there is a sweet irony there yes <laughs> well i hope to see him around because he is amusing uh yes and, uh you know and i hope to see him in that camouflage hat uh in the front row seat and, you know rolling up his uh his pants with the lint roller uh doing talking trash he he there was an incident with paul george this year wasn't there uh, this year, uh, last, yeah, last year, excuse me, in the playoffs, uh, I feel like he and Paul George may have sparred on Instagram over something. Oh, maybe, yeah. The the one I remember is uh, in that in oh, who was it? Was it um, not Solomon Hill? Like in the Pacers series where there was like a five second or there was some play where someone or someone dribbled it off his. Oh, foot. it was uh, it Jimmy was, uh, Butler, wasn't it? The five second no, call? No, that was yeah, that was in the regular season. There was it wasn't it wasn't Butler. It was um oh, I just can't remember his name now. Um. Tony Snell, I can't remember, but Rodney but, yeah. Stuckey. Rodney Stuckey. The Rodney Stuckey was the one where, yeah, he dribbled, like he dribbled and lost it, and then and then who's there? But Drake is right there, clapping away, and that's what I mean. He he somehow he somehow manages to get in the moment of the of that sort of thing. Everyone's going nuts, and there's Drake front row and center. It's 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 amazing. It's a wonderful skill. I wish I had that skill to be noticed in the trivial moments that don't belong to me. Uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, well, all right. Well, this was really a lot of fun. This was a great in-depth look at uh, the Toronto Raptors team that I think is still, even though they're really good, can be a little off the radar uh, compared to some of their competition. So, Daniel, thank you so much. Tell the folks where they can find you and the site. Uh, well, the site is RaptorsHQ.com. Uh, you can follow me at aka underscore Reynolds, uh, and you can follow us at, at RaptorsHQ. And uh, we also have our own podcast, uh, the headquarters, run by my friend Sean Woodley. Um, so you can find us all there. So check them out, uh, as the Raptors will be good again this year, and uh, you'll have a knowledge gap that they can help fill. So uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, we are going a little out of order here with the Raptors. Next up, we're going to talk about the Thunder who uh, with Welcome to Loud City. And I, I don't think there's really much to talk about there. I don't think anything really happened with them this summer. Same old, same old. So we'll just kind of have to find ways to invent talking points for an hour. We'll figure it out. Uh, and then we're almost done. And uh, I want to tease as well that we have a really cool NBA preview coming for you on SBNation.com this week uh i don't want to say too much more but it's it's one of my favorite ones yet that we've done and i think we've done some really cool ones uh so check that out uh and until next time this is a limited upside podcast